now arriving downtown Santa Monica Station. I'm Adam Lesser. And I'm Joshua Townsend Zellner. Welcome to Notes on Your Notes, a podcast about the creative process. We are in a new location today. And storytelling. Don't forget the storytelling part. Come on, Adam. And storytelling. Yeah, we're, we're here. We're, we've made it. We're at Jim Henson Productions, right? Or the, the, the building or the studio. Yes, we right? are. Yeah. There was lots of... Um, Lots of puppets everywhere. Mm-hmm. There was uh, one of the heads from where the wild things are in the lobby. Oh, that was fun. So <laughs> we have gotten full. So and I guess there was the, a total. There was a gold co- uh, uh, showcase there too was, of all the Emmys and lots like, of Emmys. It, God only knows what else. She's like, oh, this is only half. We rotate them. So, I'm like, wow, yeah, good life. She was. That was an interesting detail. That the receptionist <laughs> was like, oh no, no, that's not all of them. That's, that's just half. <laughs> Pipe down, young adolescent. Um, <laughs> and then we had Kermit the Frog reading us when we pulled in. That was fun. So you, know, I, you know Charlie Chaplin built this stuff? Uh, built these buildings? I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is the, it used to be known as the Chaplin Studios. But, you know, you ask today when you ask someone, do you know who Charlie Chaplin is? They're like, no. I'm like, yeah, wow. Well, yeah. yeah, well, I mean, yeah. This yeah. is interesting. Social media. So yeah. I think our, our listeners are probably wondering how we got past that receptionist. Yeah, and the security. <laughs> and <laughs> the security guards. Like... <laughs> How we got anywhere we near this We were on the facility. guest list, man. Thanks how we to, got anywhere near this facility. Thanks to our uh, guest. The reason we were able to get past security today mm-hmm. um, is the gentleman standing, sitting in front of us. Yes. Morris Ruskin, welcome to Notes on Your Notes. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Just one more thing I'm going to add. Yeah, Did please. you notice when you came in the gate that Kermit the Frog was wearing a bowler hat and a cane in oh. tribute to Charlie Chaplin? Oh, so oh, that's this, how they tied yeah. it in. It's amazing. My office is right above Charlie Chaplin's stage, and just the history mm. of this place to think about all those Charlie Chaplin movies were made here. It's incredible. Really? They were yeah. made here? Yeah, they were made here. Wow. Incredible, right? Yeah. This place has so much history. A&M Records was here. We were talking about the police and Aerosmith and the Rolling Stones. And today, even today, the stars that show up, Lady Gaga and John Mayer, and every day there's another. This music studio is, Paul McCartney is considered one of the best in the world, yeah. Wow. So we're surrounded by history and we're surrounded by Kermit and Miss Piggy and it's it's a lot of fun coming here. And awesome artists like you, yeah, creatives. Well, I mean, yeah. Yeah. not to the level of Charlie <laughs> Chaplin, <laughs> but uh, one day maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, for those of you at home who are wondering, I'm just going to give a 30-second bio that does yeah. not do service to Morris's career, but he's produced over 60 movies, the first of which was Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. Um, I know I told friends I was <laughs> coming in to meet with one of the producers uh, and interview of Glenn, one of the producers on Glenn Gary and Ross, and they were very, they were very jealous. Morse has produced over 60 movies, the most recent of which is Ladies in Black, directed by Bruce Beresford, who also directed Driving Miss Daisy. Morris founded Shoreline Entertainment and most recently has founded uh, Mojo Global Arts, which includes a management division. Morris, welcome. We're just here. We're going to mine your brain about producing and storytelling and your creative process, and you'll probably survive. Thank you. Most everyone has. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to start with like a really stupid, dumb question. Um, because I think people make a lot of assumptions. Mm-hmm. 
what does a producer do? Like, what do you do? <laughs> like, what is your day like? It's, it's actually a really smart question because I don't even know. Because, <laughs> but one of the things that makes it so interesting is that the job changes every single day. But there are different producers that may do different things. You know, people can get typecast or typecast. Excuse me. Oh, an executive producer. That means you helped arrange the money. Not necessarily true. You know, an associate producer. Oh, maybe you weren't that involved. Not necessarily true. Uh, what your actual title ends up being is maybe circumstantial to something else. But there could be something a line producer where you're actually on the set, mm-hmm. and you're making sure that the movie comes in on time and on budget. Or there could be more of a creative producer where you're developing the movie. Or you could be a financing producer where you're helping uh, put together the financing and the distribution deals. What I do is probably a combination of all of those, uh, where I'm very deeply involved in the creative process, I'm deeply involved in setting up the production and the financing and the casting. Uh, I'm not deeply involved in the actual day-to-day running of the set. There's, we shoot movies all over the world, so there's better people that are on the ground in the, that part of the world that can do that. And then I'm, very, I'm heavily involved in the post-production process, the creative side, as well as the business side, in terms of setting up the distribution, creating the key art, the uh, trailers, etc. Yeah. So like the full gamut. The full gamut. Yeah. I mean, and, and producer could come in in any phase, right? It could yeah. be that we come in to something that's already developed and already has an established uh, director on board, or it could be that we come in um, before there's anything. You know, I just have an idea and I want to develop it and I go talk to a writer who I like and we start developing and then we attach a director and then we attach the cast and then we start figuring out the financing um, and where we're going to shoot it and so yeah. on and so on. Do you feel that producers sometimes get typecast like actors do? Like, or, you know, they go, oh, he's, he's, he does this genre, but this producer is really good at this genre. Do you, do you find that? Very much, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and it's um, part of why I started a new company called Mojo because yeah. I think I was sort of branded by my other company, I was going to say my old company, but I still own the other company, that, you know, we do a certain type of movie or we're good at a certain type of movie. Even that company is a bit all over the map in terms of what it does. So it's not that definable, but there's a certain type of movie that I'm doing now with Mojo that nobody would ever associate with Shoreline. Um, Uh So yes, I feel like you can get branded by your own company or your own name. Yeah, yeah. So you're an entrepreneur before entrepreneurship was popular in terms of like starting your own company because you started out as a writer. Is that right? Uh, I was writing scripts while I was going to UCLA and had some success. I was writing with a writing partner in that we had stuff optioned. And then, you know, all along I was thinking I was going to be, that was a hobby and it was kind of fun to do. I was making Super 8 movies with the same friend in high school. It was just fun, and I'm enjoying the movie business, but it wasn't a real business, right? You know, writing isn't a real business to me. I was going to get into a business. I was actually interested in those years in being in the cable business because I was studying what Ted Turner was doing and how he took a little station, TBS, and he beamed it up to a satellite, and suddenly it became a network, and what HBO was doing, and I was like, oh, you know, I can do it. And I started working for MTV Networks, and everybody in that business was hating it, hating it, hating it. Um, and I said, why am I kidding myself just get into film? But I was still writing on all those years. Uh, but then I realized when I started working for a production company 
there are people that can write a lot better than I can. <laughs> so maybe I'll just use the skills that I learned mm. by writing scripts to work with writers. Ah, I see, I see. So the storytelling elements are already embedded in you so that when you look to develop a project, you're already ahead of the game. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I took classes and I read books about it and just the process of actually writing, you know, six scripts or something like that. Being fortunate enough to get stuff optioned and then develop the process of developing that stuff as well was really cool. And then to answer your, your other question mm. about uh, starting my own business, that was after Glengarry where I took that, that leap and said, you know, hey, I can do this. What was that like for you? Because that, that's huge. Um, I mean, that's really throwing a stake down the ground, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I worked for a company for six years. I worked my way up. I started as really just a PA and I quickly became the story analyst. And I went from being the story analyst to the director of development to being vice president. <laughs> and I was deeply involved in putting together Glengarry from every phase of um, the financing, the casting, script development, which was very minor because it was really changing Chicago winter to New York summer. Um, and, you know, you're dealing with... Mammoth. David Mamet, yeah. who's a master, so <laughs> there wasn't much uh, in that way. But um, but I was doing notes for the people that I was working with and everything like that. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and then I was deeply involved in the production and deeply involved in post. And in post-production, there was a woman by the name of Mary Skinner who I got along with famously, and she kept saying to me during that process, you know, if you ever want to do this on your own, just talk to me. If you ever want to do this on your own, just talk to me. When we were done, I still had this job, but the company I was working for, I said, okay, I'm talking to you. And she came from money, had a lot of money. She was young, younger than, I was 28 at the time. She was probably 24. And um, she wanted to invest in a company that we did together. And uh, wow. that's how Shoreline first started. And yeah, it was, it was fun. And it was, we had some idea what we do, were doing, but not a lot. And um, <laughs> we can get more into it as we go. But at that time, we were just a production company. Oh, uh-huh. So you knew enough to get not to get in too much trouble, but but still have some fun. Yeah, I mean, I quickly realized that it was uh, producing films can be a rich person's hobby mm. because it's very difficult to go from film to film without having a, a sort of a business behind it. Mm. And that's when I turned Shoreline into a sales company, so that not only were we producing movies, but we were selling movies, and we could sell our own movies but we could also sell other people's movies and then there was a constant flow of product that we could sell and that became the engine to keep the business going yeah keep yeah. expanding yeah yeah when, once we so once we turned the, the production company into a sales company we've been self-sufficient ever since it's just been running on its own its own engine its own fuel wow that's amazing yeah and that was yeah. 1992 Oh. I think we're, we're one of the longest, if not the longest running sales company out there in the business. I imagine when you make 60 movies, you end up seeing 100 or 1,000x in terms of scripts, pitches, proposals, creative projects coming through the door. What do you look for in the, in the projects that come to you that make you want to get involved? Mostly originality. Most stuff that I see out there is somebody writing what they saw three months ago and they were inspired by what they saw mm-hmm. and they just mm-hmm. jump at that and it's like okay I'm just seeing you know the same old thing to a certain extent to a large extent scripts are well structured 
and it's the same structure. But within that structure, you can be so original and you can have such an original voice. So when I see an original voice, I get, I get excited. Mm-hmm. So what I look for does start with a script. Um, so it has to be original. It has to be great. It has to grab you right away. And um, then I get more excited if I can actually see a path to getting the movie made. So if I can start putting the pieces together. Um, you say uh, in your mind's eye? As in my mind's eye, yeah. 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 So, okay. And by path, you mean I can see the talent that would want to be involved in this. I can see who we could sell this to, who the financiers are, all that. Yeah, all of that, including maybe where the money is going to come from. So I'll give you an example. There's a, a James Joyce movie that I'm working on. came to me from a writer-director by the name of Bob Mullen. Bob um, had some small success with the uh, independent film that he did, Mad to be Normal. And he's British. And he came to me with a James Joyce movie after I just did two films in Luxembourg. One was a Luxembourg-Belgium co-production, and the other one was a Luxembourg-Canadian co-production. So I knew how to access, I know how to access money out of Luxembourg and out of Belgium and out of Canada by putting all of those deals together. So he's a British director with an Irish subject matter for a movie set in 1929 Paris. And I'm going, okay, I can shoot this in Luxembourg. Mm-hmm. I can shoot this in Belgium. I can shoot this in Quebec City. It can look like we can yeah. you know, try to match Paris. Yeah. Um, and I can get subsidy out of Ireland because it's James Joyce. He actually has an Irish passport as well, even though he's British. So maybe we get a little more subsidy. I can get subsidy out of Luxembourg if we go that well. I can get subsidy out of Belgium. So I'm immediately putting together, I love the script. I'm, I know actors are going to do we're going to want to do this. Aidan Gillen is playing James Joyce. Um, I can see, you know, I can clearly see a path here. So that's like full-on left brain, right brain integration as you're reading it. And that's on like what, page four? Is that what, is that, is that what you're <laughs> <laughs> Probably the first paragraph. Well, first not paragraph. Kidding. Okay, so yeah, you're not fast. Kidding. Okay. I mean, you know a good writer from a mediocre writer in the first paragraph. To, oh, yeah, and, and you can't ever tell a writer that even though I'm on a podcast right now. Mm-hmm. But, you, you, I, but I do tell writers that because like, and we have a management company. We manage writers and directors. Yeah. You've got to grab people. Just pick up a James Cameron script. Anyone. Yeah. Pick it up and read the first sentence. And you're in. I see. You're in. You're like emotionally in the story, in, in, literally in the first sentence. Wow. Because he's a master. It's yeah. just, you know, good people are really good. Yeah. If, if the development process is going well, uh, what does that mean to you? What's going, what's going right? And conversely, when you're excited <laughs> about a pro- pro- project and the development process is not going well, what does that look like? So most of the time... I'm going to give you a recent example because it just helps to talk about actual examples. But um, there's a certain amount of camaraderie in the people that are involved that, and that's when it's going well because you can always work it out. It's when it's not going well, it's if you have somebody, whether it be a writer or a director in the mix who's stubborn and doesn't see it. A lot of times I, as a producer, I can offer an outside perspective more bird's eye view because I'm not, you know, sitting there in the room writing every single day. So things that are maybe obvious to me are not so obvious to them. But if you're dealing with somebody who's just stuck in their ways, which most of the time, if they're experienced, they're not, they're not stuck in their ways. They, they know how to listen to other people. And they, and at the end of the day, it's that person, it's he or she, it's her or his name in the writing credit or in the directing credit. So 
they want to hear outside ideas. They really, mm -hmm. really want to hear. Um, so the recent example, which is a good example, is that uh, there's a Spanish film from Paraguay called Seven Boxes that um, we, Shoreline as a sales company, was selling, and it was very successful in its tiny little way. It premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival, went on to play over 100 other film festivals. Reviews were just through the roof. I mean, they called it Fast and Furious with wheelbarrows and just a fun little, like, ad yeah. That's great. Yeah, fun little adventure film. So I had the rights. We sold it around the world, and, but somebody came and swooped up, bought from us the remake rights, and they went away, and they developed a script, and they came back, and it was just not good. And I was like, oh, this is so disappointing. They just tried to turn it into a science fiction movie. What It wasn't at all. It really was a little movie with wheelbarrows in Paraguay about a boy in a marketplace delivering stuff. And now it's, you know, it's, it's Robocop. So um, luckily their rights expired and we got the rights back. And I was like, okay, I, I want to give this a shot and try to do it the right way. So um, having a savvy employee who I know is also a good writer, Charles Hopkins, came to me and said, can I write this? And being savvy because he knew that this movie already had a following and had a history and its track record and maybe, you know, to help him get to the next level. So yes, you can write this because I liked his writing. And so being that we were in the same office, we could work very closely together on getting the script to a place where we were really satisfied. We decided to set it in India um, with the idea of, you can imagine a marketplace with silks and spices and, and, uh, a teenager delivering stuff in there. Mm -hmm. it's, it's got a thriller aspect to it because he's delivering some boxes and it's a mystery of what's in these boxes. Visually really striking. Mm -hmm. Visually striking. I met a director in Cannes and um, she just had a movie in Sundance and before that had a movie in Venice, like back-to-back, -back, different movies. Mm. So she's suddenly like on the map in a big way. Yeah. And we got along really well and I told her about this project. She read it and she loved it. She saw the original movie, she loved it. So she's on board and excited about this project. So now I've got this dynamic of, of her, the writer, and, but she decides that she thinks the movie will be better set in Mexico than in India. And she wants to shoot it in Mexico and wants to adapt it. And she gave us like good reasons why. And we're like, okay, um, let's give that a try. So we hired, I hired uh, a writer by the name of Augusto Mendoza. Augusto had a film called Mr. Pig which Diego Luna directed, uh, which was in Sundance. Uh, the, uh, just this past year, 2019, he had a film in Cannes directed by Gail Garcia Bernal. Um, so this is huh. quite a young writer from Mexico. Um, and so we started working with him. So now you've got this dynamic, right, of Augusto, lovely guy, our director, lovely woman, Charles, lovely guy, me, Verdict's still out, but all working together <laughs> on changing to Mexico. So what happens in this process is, you know, we decide to change one key character from a male to a female, and the script starts getting better, and the change of the location and the stuff that you can get out of Mexico and some of the plot points change because just the difference of yeah. Mexico and India, yeah. the original movie being set in Paraguay. Um, <laughs> but it starts becoming more and more interesting, and working together... It's just, you know, this great process because everybody's excited and everybody's in love with this script and original film. And so that's a long answer to your question. Yeah, no, no, that was wonderful. <laughs> no, I get a sense even just listening to you talk that, like, yeah. there's a pleasure in watching it evolve when the people involved are excited about what is possible and not 
singularly attached to either a bad story idea like making it sci-fi or needing it to be in a specific location that they have become their sole vision. Yeah, lockdown. Like That's a lockdown right. before it's too, That's before, right. before yeah. time, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, this is the point where I'm supposed to ask you about disaster stories, but <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to name names. <laughs> but... Wow. Um, in the process of the creative process or the production, there's lots of, there's lots of, uh, <laughs> lots of disasters to pick <laughs> production disaster stuff. I don't know about disaster, but there's lots of like crazy things, you know, it's like, I production mean, di- meaning when you get to that point and then things fall apart where the script is good and you have the right people and then, yeah. And then, you know, it's just not quite going as you had planned <laughs> in terms of the production. Oh, but, you know what, you know what I would love? I would love to add in the caveat of, of you, in, in retrospect, there was like, oh, that's where my that's where my tell was, right? That was where my tell where this wouldn't necessarily work out. It wasn't going to be a smooth sail. And then and then that little thing, that little moment that you notice, shows up big time and makes it go south. One of those. Yeah, it's yeah. usually personality, right? I mean, yeah. you can and you usually forge ahead because you're so far in that you mm-hmm. want to get it done, right. and you don't <laughs> want to pull the plug because you're there right because so you close. know that yeah. the director or somebody involved is not you know and I, I feel like i'm at that point in my life where I've, I've i've produced so many movies i don't have to produce another movie if i don't want to yeah i love doing it and it's like a drug for me so i'm like crazy about it you know to get movies done but um you know if the people aren't right if why? Why bother? Yeah. You know, I'm not, I'm, I don't need to work with difficult people. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, one uh, again, not a disaster, but uh, it's funny because this movie was made in Mexico, but I was at the Toronto Film Festival, and on one, um, I'm getting, I can't remember what movie we had. We had something, and it was a big premiere and everything. But I'm getting a call from one director, who's complaining to me that I approved an expense from a PA to buy some coffee when they had some lunch. Literally, like like, like this like nonsense. I'm like, really? Are you calling me about it? And then on the other, I'm getting another call from a director in Mexico who is about to start shooting a movie, and he's crying, and he's ready to get on a plane and come home because he can't take it anymore. And I'm like, okay, Amir, take a breath. You love the script, right, because you wrote it. <laughs> yes, I, I love the script. Yeah, he said. I said you love the director because you are the director, right? He goes, yes. You love the cinematographer because he's your cinematographer. You picked him. He's like, yes. You love the actors because you picked all of them, right? And he's like, yes. I said, you told me when you work, walked onto that set, you were just the breath was sucked out of you because you loved those sets so much and all these sets you built. Like, what else do you need? You've got you've got your script. You've got your director. You've got your cinematographer. You got your actors. You got, you've got everything that you want. Hmm. Don't worry about all the nonsense going on in the background. There's other people that can handle that. If some actor is insisting that they bring their dog on an airplane to Mexico from L.A., that's not your problem. <laughs> Somebody else will sort that. Just relax. Just take it easy and smooth sailing from there on. So. Wow. But that's you know, stuff I'm, I'm, you know, I'm at a festival focused on a movie that we have there, and I'm dealing with... Right. nonsense from one director who shouldn't even have been involved in that but it just so happened that his wife was the producer and his wife was scared to talk to me so he who we have a good good relationship he could call me and quibble about two dollars and 99 cents coffee yeah yeah uh, but that's you know that's the story you asked what a producer does earlier and that's just uh, no, a little are, bit of it these are good details uh 
did you when you were a kid was this what you were dreaming about doing creatively like what were you thinking about when you were younger probably uh high school when i moved to la and i started as i mentioned earlier making super eight movies with my friend yeah uh greg and writing scripts while going to ucla with greg but still even at that time it was a hobby it wasn't a passion it wasn't well it was a passion but it was a but it was a hobby i was you know keeping my eye on a real business like the cable business or something where but you know and this I sort of get to do both. It's really, it is, as they say, show business. So you know, I feel as though I do a lot of creative stuff and a lot of business stuff. Um, it's a nice balance. And funnily enough, my dad is a businessman who's run businesses, his business, all his life. And my mom was a, an actress. So she um, was on the creative side. So I've sort wow. of like... So you have yeah, both. You have right have side, both, yeah. right side, yeah. left side, firing. Yeah. And if you could give advice to that... 20, 21 year old you, who I guess is coming out of UCLA for film or theater. What would you, what would you say? And, would you, and, and, and can we overlay today as opposed today. to, you know what I mean? Because yeah. like the technology yeah. and everything else is changing everything so much. True. Um, so when I first started in this business, Peter Deckham, who was still is a lawyer, but at that time he was a, a lawyer for a major firm uh, Bloom, Deckham, and Hergott. And this is in the 80s. They represented people like Bruce Willis and Sylvester Stallone and uh, on and on. Uh, he said to me, why do you want to be a producer? That's the worst job ever. You're crazy, you know, producer. They, they get none of the credit. They get all the blame. You should be a director. So, so my advice to writers and producers is be a director. But... <laughs> If you don't want to Change be a director, <laughs> you don't want to be a director and you want to produce, I would say, I think it's really, really tough to go from one job to another as a writer and as a producer. And I see people doing that and I just, I always wonder how they sustain themselves unless they're the top, top, top. It's like being a professional tennis player, right? It's like maybe the top 30 people are really successful, really, really successful, but where, where did everybody else end? How do they survive? Um, so build a business around you. And that's what I did. This is 1992. Um, we started as a production company. And then, I, as I mentioned earlier, I said, wow, this seems like, you know, like a rich person's hobby. We had five things set up. I had something at Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers Television, actually, with Alec Baldwin. I had something set up with another sales company. I had something at New Line. Of all of those, one of those movies got made. It was called The Price of Glory, but it took five years to get it made. Um, so I said, how do you make money in this business? Well, who makes money? It's the banks because they're lasted and first out. It's yeah. the lawyers because they get paid to do what they do. Yeah. It's, uh, the sales companies because they're selling and getting a commission. It's the distributors because yeah. they get their money back in that, the P and A and, and their yeah. fee in a first position. So how do I position myself in that? So I was thinking at the time, well, it's either sales or business I really understood because of Glengarry, not ironically, Glengarry is about sales, but because I was deeply involved in setting up the financing of that. Mm -hmm. And the way we did that was by pre-selling the movie around the world, Japan, Germany, United States, on and on. And we used that money to produce the movie. So I understood that business. And the other thing I was thinking about was management, managing writers and directors. Yeah. Didn't have as much experience or much experience in that at all at that time. So started a sales company. And within six months after starting the sales company, we had three films in production that were wow. as a result of pre-selling of, of the sales company. And as I mentioned earlier, we've been self-sufficient ever since because it's a real business. Now, that business can sustain my hobby of 
producing movies, right? Mm-hmm. My bad habits or my bad <laughs> hobbies. Um, and um, I think, you know, management, we came to management many, many, many years later, mm-hmm. um, formed the management company. It came from, uh, again, a related story. A friend of mine, Alex Flores, who is from Mexico, mm-hmm. was produced a movie, an animated f- uh, film called El Americano. And you know, it took him four years to make the film. And he had to defer his fees to make the film. And you know, it was a fight to get his fees after the movie started, finally hit the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And I said, Alex, you can't make one movie at a time. This is crazy. You can't. Mm-hmm. Why not join me and let's start a management company? Because you're so good at talking to artists. You have so many friends in Mexico that you talk about that we could represent and maybe start a Latin American division or a Mexican division. And that's the origins of the management company where we started representing and still do. But that's, you know, building a, a business around your writing career or building a business around your producing career. I think it probably applies more to producing than writing. Mm-hmm. But writing, you really have to get lucky too, right? I mean, you know, you need to, mm-hmm. you need to create something else for revenue. Well, that's, you know, it's an interesting point you're making because that is my question. It's like, so for all the the writers listening to this who deal with that reality of like, unless you get staffed on a TV show or you become in in the film industry, one of those top 30, 50, 100 people who they're going to go to to write a script or to adapt my P, you know, it's like you're saying, well, build a business, try to, you need to figure out a way to be sustainable, to have a career if you want to have a multi-decade career, not have this be a hobby or not be waiting tables for the rest of your life. Um, it sounds like for you that was to build a company that did sales and management in in addition to producing films. Are there other ways you've seen or are there recommendations or things in terms of for the artists out there, for the directors, the writers who are trying to figure out a way to sort of be in this flow of creating while also having a business? So, I mean, on the top I mentioned who makes the money, right? Lawyers. Mm -hmm. You could get a law degree, but uh, and that sounds funny, but I know lawyers are great writers because that's what they do. They do a lot of writing. Uh, I don't think you know most writers are not going to want to go get a law degree, <laughs> but I have met lawyers that yeah. certainly have scripts. Uh, they've you know opened up their door and said, "Would you read this?" and "Would you read that?" Um, I mentioned bankers, you know, but uh, you don't necessarily have to be a banker. But if there's a way you can create a fund that can help fund movies that maybe it's uh, like banks do and it doesn't necessarily have to be a a risk fund because banks don't take risk but you've created a business distribution you know it's kind of hard for a writer to maybe break into the world of distribution sales creating you know just going out there and creating right I mean as you said how does it earlier Joshua how does it apply Mm -hmm. to today right so is it is it that you're creating a YouTube channel Um, so there's some writers and a director that I love. These guys are called the, the good cops. They're a troop. They um, kind of like think of Monty Python, but an American version. And they created a show for YouTube that was picked up by Machinima hmm. called The Good Cops. And then they created another show called Tumbleweed, which is sort of a Western. It's comedy. It riffs on, on gaming. But they write them and they direct them and they're getting out there and they're doing it and they're creating a following. And um, we made a movie together. Um, they said, you know, we, we want to figure out how we take this to the next level. So yeah. we made a movie called I Had a Bloody Good Time at <clears throat> House Harker, excuse me, which was a riff on vampire films, um, which I ended up being actually in, which is, an, which is another story <laughs> I could tell you, which is kind of funny. Um, 
Did you have but, to go through casting? Uh, no. <laughs> There's no screen test? <laughs> no screen. Um, I can tell you the story if you're interested. Um, Let us know. Yeah. Um, so there was no casting because what happened was I was on my way to visit my daughter at Occidental mm-hmm. at the time. And I stopped at their house, one of the, it was the director's house, because we were sort of setting up pre-production at that time. And they were, we were just going through some stuff. And they wanted to take a, a photograph, just a photograph of what the father, who's alluded to in the movie, they wanted the father when the kids were little because they wanted to be prominent in the house because they talk a lot about mm-hmm. the father right. and how he was the vampire slayer and this really cool vampire slayer, but since he's passed on. So oh. I took a picture with me and my wife, who was one of the guys dressed up in drag. It's, it's funny, right? <laughs> and the, the little kids who are... Uh, the director's kids and the writer's kids. Mm-hmm. So this is the whole family. And they go make the movie. Um, and they made the movie in Wisconsin. And it was freezing there. And, mm-hmm. you know, that was another like production nightmare, right? Of, and they come back with a movie that's too short. Oh. And it's missing something. But in the meantime, there's a lot of footage with that picture, that photograph in the background. And they said... You know, we decided we want to add some heart to the movie, so wouldn't it be really cool to see what the kids went through when they were little growing up? (laughs) (laughs) So they said to me, would you Uh, think about playing the dad? And I'm like, are you sure? (laughs) (laughs) Are you sure about that? So um, we did... I did because it was fun and it it was such a flip on what I'm normally doing because suddenly everybody's treating me like... I don't know, like I'm royalty. I'm like, I can get used to this. Yeah, yeah. talent <laughs> comes good. in. Look at this. Yeah. <laughs> this is fun. Craft um, services yeah. at your door, right? No one's looking at me like, why are you eating the craft services? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, the bean counter's here. Yeah, right. <laughs> so it was a really, really, really fun experience. And I did this scene with um, my son. I actually did a series of scenes with my son, but one of them was we were playing chess. And, you know, I'm telling him, I'm giving him life advice in terms of moving the pieces. Uh And then there's another scene where he's coming home from school and he's beaten up and I'm, and I'm giving him more advice. And then there's a scene of, you know, me reading him a story and saying goodnight. Um, and, um, it worked out so well. They loved it so much. And it added this heart to the movie that they came back and said, we want to do another scene with your daughter. (laughs) Then I was like, really guys, you were pushing your luck. I think I felt like we got through that just like, you know, just because, because the director was so great and he really, you know, talked me through everything. And and, and we really want to do it. We really want to push it. And we did, did another scene with my daughter, which was great. And, um, so I've, you know, like a, a big presence in the movie now because, of this, you know, one scene is kind of near the beginning, the other scene is near the end. Mm-hmm. You really are telling me what a producer does. You know, will do anything to yeah. get that, that movie to where it needs to be. <laughs> right. <laughs> whatever, whatever it takes. Yeah. Well, I, we didn't mention this to you, but in every, in every podcast where we have a special guest like yourself, we, um, we take a pause and um, I whip out um, a hand-selected uh, cacao bar. Uh, wow. And it's nice. usually it's a premium cacao bar, and uh, and we get a chance to open it up and taste it, and you know check it out. So 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 go ahead, and you you can tell our listeners what uh, what's happening there. Ritual Chocolate Peru, seventy five percent cacao. Yeah. 
and it's a beautiful purple box and it looks very fancy it's floral herbal toasted peanuts and stone fruit I'm just making everybody. Is this like a commercial? <laughs> I was roped into doing commercials. This is our commercial. Get, this is a little product placement. We yeah, get, we get a, a kickback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, we're we're going to do you, a roll with this. Brought to you by Original Chocolates. <laughs> I've been so set up. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's there. And um, this is beautiful. It, it, beautiful if I would have known, we would have done Paraguay. But, uh, you know, because Paraguay, I, I saw a cacao. great movie from Paraguay at the San Sebastian Film Festival. Did you really? Yes. What was it called? The Money Changer. Oh, it was a, it was very well done. The movie I actually really loved out of there was Pacified, which was a Brazilian movie um, that was produced, executive produced by Darren Aronofsky, which was mm. shot in the favelas of Rio, and that was really really great. And it was super cool there to, I, to see it in a theater of eighteen hundred people. So it was. Really Adam, cool. Adam was just there like what ten days ago? Last week. Last week. But, yeah. Um, th- you know, like Paraguay is not a country I'm really familiar at all with the theater world, and then. Uh, with the film world and then to see a really well done movie was really cool I mean and that's kind of like the what you get access to when you go to a film festival and yeah. you see like they had a whole section just on Latin America yeah, um, it's incredible right it's incredible well yeah we could have a whole long conversation about this but yes it's incredible to see how they make movies and it, when you take a step back from Hollywood and to see the amount of time and space they give to character development mm-hmm. and the visual risks they take and how they shoot it um you know, I'm not saying they're not all good. We, I saw some stuff that was really bad, but when they're given the latitude to make those kinds of movies, which was really amazing, and even the Paxton Winters movie Pacified, which was set, they shot that in the favelas, you know, with in cooperation with the community, and it's it just visually looks incredible. I mean, they had a shot of the fireworks over the Rio Olympics while the, one of the main characters is looking over. I mean. They just, from looking down on the favelas, the perspective of this is something we don't get to participate in. You know, that's our sort of filmmaking. Like, I don't think, with that sort of visual meaning and, like, the heart to it, it was just cool to see. And I think until you're in those environments, I mean, these are movies which I doubt will ever get theatrical distribution in the U.S., but, you know, you know they're Spanish and Portuguese language. and so Yeah, but that's kind of incredible. And the reason why... I'm excited about the management business because we represent people from all over the world and you're seeing companies like Netflix and Amazon and Apple TV and Disney Plus and HBO Max are all interested in local content. So what it does is it it opens up the subscription base, right? Because if you're yeah. making a, a movie in Brazil, mostly for a Brazilian audience, for a Spanish-speaking or Portuguese-speaking audience, that you... you you're going to have that audience. Netflix is going to maybe get more subscribers. But mm-hmm. if a movie actually works or the television show actually works, it goes beyond the borders of Brazil. And it might be all over Latin America and it might be all over Spain, but it might go beyond that. It might be a hit in the United States. It might be a hit in Canada. It might be a hit in Germany. So today's world is so much different from 10 years ago where, mm-hmm. this, where, where filmmakers have an opportunity. I want to follow up on something you said about distribution and with streaming. Um, giving you, allowing you to rep talent as well as films and being able to access more markets, I would imagine, in the sales world mm-hmm. because of those services, getting to more markets. With uh, declining, I think, theatrical viewership, certainly in the U.S., um, and I imagine other countries for those sorts of independent, traumatic features, I'm curious like how the industry is evolving and how you see making features now in terms of getting them to market because and like you know even 
how much does theatrical distribution play a role in, in your thinking even now? I think there's two thoughts, and one is old school and one is the new school. So you take uh, the filmmakers on I Had a Bloody Good Time at House Harker, the movie I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. where a lot of filmmakers are very precious about showing the movie on a big screen for the first time and making sure that it's theatrical. But they're not because they came from the world of YouTube, of Machinima, where they made YouTube videos, and they're used to people seeing it on the small screen, and to them, that's exciting. And if the fact that we got, you know, we that movie ended up being an Amazon Prime premiere, that was really exciting to them. But then I'll work with other directors who are like, no, you can't, you know, send a link to my movie. It has to, everybody has to see it on the big screen. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's, um, it's just, a, I think it's a different way of thinking. But a lot of times movies end up being seen by a lot more people if they're on a streamer than they would possibly ever be seen. And sometimes, you know, I still like the idea of theatrical. Sometimes the film festivals act as a theatrical premiere where maybe I mentioned uh, Seven Boxes, the original movie went to 100 film festivals. Maybe that's a little much, but, you know, as a filmmaker, imagine going to a festival, seeing your movie premiere at Toronto, and then having a Q&A afterwards. You mentioned 1,800 people seeing that movie that you liked. So that kind of, that's an experience. That's part that's of, awesome. yeah, that's part of the theatrical experience. So, you know, maybe you go to 25 film festivals and you're getting immediate audience feedback and that's very, very rewarding but, and your movie never ends up being a, a typical theatrical release. It ends up being on Netflix or Amazon or wherever. I think this, you know, it's still really rewarding and satisfying and it's just a different way of thinking. So I'm going to drill down and be annoying because I'm the son of a businessman, accountant, CFO. Have the economics changed? Meaning when you go to finance a movie like in the 90s or even the early 2000s and you think about what you could have expected to, in sales to get back from theatrical release versus today where you're thinking there's going to be limited theatrical money and I have to make this back by selling it to streaming services or some foreign rights. Is the amount of money available to make those movies less? Like, how have the economics changed? And, and toss in pre, you know, uh, pre-sales as well, because a lot of times I, I hear about that being funding. You know, yeah, it's changed dramatically, and it changes. Like in this business, we always have to be on our feet because financing structures change so much. Um, some for the better, some for the worse. So, answering your question, I think there are. You can go make a movie, and it could you know catch fire and it could be a theatrical success and and you can do enormously well but even back in the 80s and 90s that was always just a chance right that that would happen i think there you know the streamers there's more opportunity now because there's more buyers you know before we used to have all this you know we used to have warner brothers and sony and universal and disney and lionsgate um as the top echelon buyers now you've got companies like netflix netflix excuse me and amazon and HBO Max and Apple TV that can compete at that sort of level. Facebook, YouTube, Google. You have that now. So it's more buyers, which means more opportunity. But every movie is a little bit different. Pre-sales is a little harder today than it used to be. In yeah. the 80s, you could put Sylvester Stallone on a poster and you could sell it. Right. Today, um, it's not as easy as it used to be in, in that regard in putting together the financing. But the opportunity to sell a good movie is still available. And whether it's going to be swooped up by a company by, like Netflix who's going to take worldwide rights or swooped up by a company like Sony who's going to take worldwide rights and one is going to put it out 
theatrically and the other isn't, or the other might do a small theatrical just to appease you or to do some sort of campaign, is that going to affect the bottom line? You, you don't know, right? Because it could be that Sony offers $5 million for your movie and you get a piece of the back end. And it could be that Netflix offers $12 million for your movie with no back end because there's no upside. And you don't know until you know, but you want to take the risk with Sony because you're hoping the movie's going to break through. But that $5 million is all you ever see because Sony is busy recouping the print and advertising money they put up. So it's you don't know, but one thing I do know is that... It, the financing structures and how you make money has evolved tremendously from home video, DVD stores, blockbuster chains to streaming, which, you know, there was definitely a dip, a downward dip in between streaming coming up and DVDs going down. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, it's, there's no one answer other than, what you pointed out already, that it's evolved and it continues to evolve with new technologies coming in. Are you optimistic? Are you optimistic that like the making of feature films, and it sounds like the work you guys do is obviously quite independent. Um, are you optimistic that like the business actually is heading towards a better direction? I'm definitely optimistic, yeah. Okay. And maybe that's just because I'm optimistic <laughs> <laughs> in nature. But most definitely just because you know, there's so much content out there, right? When I grew up, content was king. And um, now it's, it's even more so. More and more people want content. What I mentioned earlier about local programming, local filmmakers having an opportunity. It's just, you didn't see that before. So That's fascinating to me because that brings in that whole thing which I find interesting right now, which is personal, personal taste over professional taste. And so if your personal taste doesn't resonate with the local talent but you know professionally it's like how do you how do you constantly find that balance well i mean if you're talking about going into another country and figuring out what's working in that country Mm -hmm. then you best be working with filmmakers from that country that you really trust and writers from that country and as i told about the earlier story about changing it from from (laughs) india to mexico and bringing in a mexican writer yeah so to a certain degree, you know, story is story, and I think if it works like the original movie worked as an adventure movie that was exciting and, and, and the themes in that movie are so strong, that it's going to work in that country and it's going to work all over the world. But in terms of bringing the nuances of that country that you have to work with local filmmakers and you have to trust that they know what they're doing. How about do you do you look at projects sometimes and you don't have a personal mm, resonance with it? It's like it doesn't touch you, and yet and yet because of what's happening in the marketplace, a business side, you still go well. Yes. You know, having run Shoreline Entertainment for twenty seven years or mm-hmm. something like that, mm-hmm. that that company is a is a hungry beast that needs to be fed, and by feeding that means it needs product, and by product it usually means stuff that's really very commercial. So it could be things like creature features. And my heart isn't really in creature features. Sometimes I'm enjoying them, and sometimes I'm making fun with them because it's filmmaking is filmmaking. But it's not, you know, where I really am. And um, so by starting Mojo, I was sort of able to step out of that machine mm-hmm. and do stuff that's a little more to personal taste, maybe a little more eccentric and interesting and independent than feeding the beast with product that the worldwide marketplace wants. I see. Mm-hmm. And South Africa. You have projects coming up in South Africa. 
I do. Uh, uh, a big budgeted film that's going to be shooting in the spring with a major studio that we're in um, advanced stages of developing the script just to get the script to a place where everybody's extremely excited about it. But I'm doing a lot in South Africa. Um, part of, you know, Mojo and part about doing projects that I'm really interested in is that it's, it's also set up for social impact. And so we're doing, you know, environmental type stuff and that are obvious social impact projects, documentaries. Um, for example, we're doing uh, Urban Youth Racing School, which is something we set up with Overbrook, Will Smith's company. And it's about a school in Philadelphia that's existed for 20 years that takes kids from 8 to 18 and teaches them how to race cars. But it's a lot more than that. They're teaching them the STEM subjects. And those kids, maybe 1% up in, end up in motorsports, 99% go to college, get great jobs, um, are you know doing amazing things. So we're doing a docu-series around that school. And what I want to do is I also want to build that school in South Africa. In Johannesburg, there's a racetrack called Kailami, which mm. you may be... It's so funny. So just to tell listeners, Morris and I are both born in South Africa. Um, and they're both in the same room at the same time, so the I, know they're not, I know they're not the same person. <laughs> they really are um, different people. And we both left as children, me a bit younger than Morris. But uh, it's just funny. You know, I've heard of Kailami. <laughs> and so like... Um, but that's also because my dad's really into cars and drive, race car driving. Yes, yeah, so my dad used to take me there as oh, a wow. kid, and it was Formula One oh, wow. racing. And, and coincidentally, Will Smith did a deal with Formula One recently and with Lewis Hamilton. It was on his bucket list. He has a show called The Bucket List. And, and that's how I sort of put the pieces together. I'm like, wait a minute. Will Smith's from Philadelphia. He just did a deal with Formula One. <laughs> Let's get in contact with him because he might like this. And within really... 24 hours of letting his agent know if he would be interested in this. I got a call from Callie Pinkett, um, who is president of Overbrook, saying, I told Will about this. He can't believe, he just cannot believe that he's never heard of the school in his own hometown. He's flipped for the idea. We want to do this. And um, See, Morris, I, I have to say, that's where I feel like one of your brilliances is your ability to connect the dots. Because in every story you've told us today, I see it like over and over and over. You like take one idea over here and one resource over here and another resource here and you just go whoosh, and you make it happen that's that's incredible that's, that's visionary that's part of uh, probably part of producing what does a producer do <laughs> so it, it, but it's also i think part of one of your one of your gifts because i don't know a lot of people who can do it like with that amount of being that facile oh, well thank you yeah that's amazing to watch which kind of leans right into setting up Urban Youth Racing School in South Africa. Yeah, because that's a mirroring. That's fantastic. Yeah, and yeah. because I'm making a movie in South Africa already, and I'm entrenched in South Africa, and I've made a couple of movies there, and I know what subsidy I can get out of South Africa, and I know we can <laughs> fund this school out of South Africa with the help of my South African partners. Yeah. Um, so we're setting it up, and obviously it's doing a lot for you know education in South Africa, and we're going to produce the show, maybe season two, maybe season three, whatever, four, mm -hmm. around South Africa. Um, but I mentioned social impact, right? So the show in itself has some social impact. But also, so this big budget of movie we're doing in South Africa and the show, um, even though the movie is not a social impact movie, it's an action movie, mm -hmm. the way it's set up and the way we're getting the subsidy is because it's coming from a fund that is supporting black women, black South African women, businesses hmm. 
So it's, it, we are having an impact. We're employing people. We're giving people opportunity. Um, uh, and, you know, it's like it's, it's, it works on so, so, so many levels that um, it's, you know, since, since apartheid ended, it's still, this, it's still not a balance in South Africa. There's still, you know, too many white men leading the industry there. So they're trying to create balance. So, you know, if we can bring in projects that are meaningful and interesting and maybe bringing in a lot of money that's going to have an economic impact and we can have a social impact by training people and we're giving opportunities to women, then all the better. And you have this amazing ripple effect that you're creating from, you know, from its source in Philadelphia. And it's, I mean, that's, and then it's going to ripple out beyond borders. Yes. That's, a, that's exciting. Yeah, it is yeah. exciting. And you change people's lives. Yeah, that's, you know, this, this is the kind of stuff that really, really does excite me. Yeah, I hear, I hear well, that. You're getting at something I wanted to ask about, which is that, you know, when you have a three-decade career, and I imagine you come in with certain dreams of who you're going to be as a producer, and then three, you know, 25, 30 years later, I'm just curious if your personal definition of what it is to be successful has changed over that period, because you're talking now about how exciting it is for you to do something with a social impact. And I'm just wondering if things have evolved for you in terms of what that perspective is. Most definitely, most definitely. Um, so, I mean, that's part of leaning into the how and why I started Mojo to do stuff that I think is more interesting to me personally. So the idea of success is not around money um, necessarily, right? It's Or not only about money. It's about working with people that you really like it's about doing projects that are really interesting i make independent movies right so i'm, I'm not really in the feature f uh studio feature film business but that is an aspiration that's a dream and i'm you know starting mojo is part of that as well right i'm doing this big studio movie i'm doing another movie in germany with wolfgang peterson and um wow. and i have a lot of television uh, stuff set up bigger television shows and things like that so i'm you know that's happening. But back to your sort of question, you know, so maybe in my early days it was all about studio movies and that's just how I was thinking. And then I started this independent production sales company. So it became about, you know, making movies that are really commercial. And now it's about making movies, excuse me, movies with people I really like. And it's about making movies that I care about or documentaries or television shows that have some kind of impact. And impact you know, is social can be social impact, like on the surface, is because it's about an issue that's relevant, or it could be just about an economic stimulation, you know, things behind the scenes, training, what's going on, or it could just be impact that people are actually hear about your movie and are talking about it at the water cooler. You know? yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I think it comes back to a belief that some of my friends have and some of them don't, which is that the art they create and the movies they create can change how people live and think and they can have an impact beyond entertaining people. Mm -hmm. uh, do you feel that way? Absolutely. Um, abso absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think, especially if we're getting more and more involved in in social impact type of television shows, mm. documentaries that we're working on that can be entertaining but at the same time actually have something to say and people can learn things. And, you know, back to your... Uh, earlier point about streaming and how it affects the business. I mean, you can make a documentary about the environment and maybe it gets a theatrical release and maybe 
12 people see it. But you can also get a company like Amazon or Netflix to pick it up and millions of people will see it. Yeah. And, yeah. and people will learn something. I always ask people their favorite part of their job and their least favorite. I think the favorite thing is that it's so different. I'm doing so many different things. It's people wouldn't actually believe what I do. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes I'm like, if somebody actually knew what I was doing, they would just think this was unbelievably insane. And, um, I, I could, I could be in Romania. Um, I was in Romania the middle of the night we're shooting. I'm going from one soundstage to another. And suddenly I hear this like rush coming at me and it's a stampede of horses and they're standing in the middle and they're just coming by me by rushing past me. I'm just standing there still as can be. Um, at night I go home to my apartment and it's freezing. So all the dogs, there's a lot of stray dogs in Romania. They've all huddled into the revolving door and piled atop of each other. So you've got, you know, you've got like tons of dogs all stuffed into this revolving door. And this is my way into the apartment. I can't even get in there. Am I going to dare to step over these dogs? Are they going to bite me? What if I'm going to get into my own apartment that I rented uh, for the shoot? Um, so it's like <laughs> I managed, but and then you know, and then I'm you know, then and then the next day I'm at on a red carpet at the Berlin Film Festival with famous people, and I'm like, do you know where I was yesterday? <laughs> you have no idea where I was, was yesterday. Meanwhile, you know, I'm. Uh, at the same time, I, you know, on the plane, on the plane flight, I had to make notes on a script or I had to give comments on a trailer or I have to approve some artwork or make notes on some artwork. And it's, you know, and it's like, it's always going and it's always different. It's all these things. And it's, you know, it's, uh, it's setting up the next one. It's doing development notes on the next one. It's the one in post and it's, it's doing editing notes on the one that's post. It's doing trailer notes and poster notes and figuring out who's going to pick up and talking to distributors about it and casting another one. So it's, that's what I like about it. That's what I love about it. All phases, all phases, all phases at at once. And nobody has any idea that I'm talking to like the story I told earlier about some director about $2 and 99 cents. Well, I got another director (laughs) crying at the same time in, in Mexico that he wants to come home. Um, nobody has any idea. It's just like, you know, I'm on the red carpet smiling and, you know, and meanwhile, you know, the movie's gone dark and I know I got to call that director back or I know I got to get those script notes in and I know I got to get that, you know, they want to go out with that poster and I got to approve the artwork and whatever. It goes on and on. But that's, a, that's what I love about it. Nice. Wow. You're, you're going to tell me your least favorite part? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Come> <laughs> trying on. to avoid that. Yeah, give it up. Come on. <laughs> I, um, I guess it's, you know, because you do encounter difficult people in this industry. So... I I try I just don't deal with them anymore. I just try to get them out of my life. So I mean, whenever it's dealing with somebody that's difficult, it's like I want to I, I look at them and I and I want to shake them and I always say, "Come on, man, we are making entertainment business. We're not doctors. There is nobody's life. They could be lives at stake. Yes, you got to be safe. The set's got to be safe. You got to take that in. But most of the time, when we're developing things, are we giving? This is we're, nobody's life is at stake. We're not heart surgeons. Let's have fun. Let's enjoy what we do. Let's love it. So I surround my people, myself with people that I really, really like. Um, you know, the staff at Shoreline, although I'm not day-to-day at Shoreline anymore, but people have worked for me for 20 years. 
Really? Wow. 20 years, 15 years, 10 years. That's amazing. Family, I love them. People here at Mojo are, you know, Jordan, who's my partner in Mojo, mm -hmm. I've worked with him for 20 years. He's a director. I've oh. uh, executive produced two of his movies. He's somebody that I genuinely, genuinely like. We sort of see eye to eye. We're, we're the same, you know, sort of personality. We get along really well. That's where you got to surround yourself with. The people that work at Mojo are really good people. Otherwise, it's, life is too short. So I, I have, I have a sort of a follow-up question for uh -huh. what Adam is talking about. What, what do you feel like is like that, that, mm, that your innate skill set as a human being was like, like the yes, yes, yes for what you're doing? And what, what innate area of development have you found that you've grown a lot because of the work you're doing? You know what I'm saying? Sort of that personal awareness development thing. I have no idea what you're talking about, but I'll try <laughs> wing it anyway. <laughs> let me let me try to yeah. interpret. <laughs> I can wing it anyway. Yeah. Look, this is the role I play. Yeah, yeah. Try to, you know, look at the tea leaves and figure out what you're. Jed, I think what you're you're asking is what are the innate strengths that you probably brought to your job, and then what over the years have you noticed where your weak? Do you have awareness of what your weaknesses are? And, and have you had to develop those and try to... I would say areas of development. Areas of development. Josh is, like, <laughs> Josh is taking too many neuro-linguistic programs. Like, doesn't like... It bothers him to focus on any negative. He probably, you probably didn't like my question about uh, what do you not like about your job? Well, you know... You, know, you mean, uh, what, are you, what are the rooms for development at work? I, I've dropped all judgment around that too, Adam. Yeah, exactly. So even that, I can let it go. So. Um, is that what... Am I interpreting yeah, what you're yes, saying correctly? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I guess... Uh, you know, it all comes down to communication skills, right? At the end of the day, it's like it's it's all about harnessing, working with the creative people that you surround yourself with. Mm. And, you know, on a, but maybe not even necessarily all the time creative. So I take that back. So it's it's being able to jump between the creative and the business side. So being able to deal with the lawyers and the bankers, but it's all personality. It's all about you know getting stuff done in a timely manner. Same on the creative process. So being able to. So maybe that's my strength is the ability to communicate, the ability to inspire and get people, the ability to have people working for me for 20 years, 15 years, and so on. It comes from, um, I guess that's a strength. Um, You're so steady. It's amazing to me. Well, thank you. Yeah. So maybe it's the steadiness. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm just, I'm just, you know, like as we're having our conversation today, I just get like rock solid steadiness from you, like throughout all of your stories and just your, just your presence. It's, it's interesting that Did you, you notice that, that out. Do you notice yeah, that? Yeah. Well, I, I do notice it. And I, one thing that you haven't talked about that is interesting. I've talked to some other producer friends about is that there is a enormous, um, cycle of disappointment of you fall in love with this project so good you're pitching it and you can't find a buyer right and among the producer friends i know who are still at it after 10 15 20 years mm -hmm. they have a similar disposition to you in that they're like you just one foot in front of the other be steady focus on what you like keep moving forward with the next project but i also know from talking to some of them that that is a that's a aspect of the job you know it's like they spend a year or two years developing a project that is brilliant and they love and then they can't find a buyer and it's hard is that does is what I'm saying ringing true for you, or from an emotional standpoint in terms of maintaining internal stability? Yeah, it definitely rings true. I mean, there are those movies that are disappointing, but I kind of know early, there's, and and there's not much you can do about it just because the director's usually the director's vision just went in a different direction, and it's so different from maybe what was on the page. So, 
no matter what you do, you can fix it to a certain degree, but you can't fix it enough. So it's never going to be great. Maybe it'll be good. And that is disappointing. But um, it happens the other way around too, right? Sometimes the director mm -hmm. is able to bring something that's just beyond your expectations. And it's like, so, wow, this really, you know, this really worked well. So, uh, yeah. That it, it, or even you invest a couple of years in a project that you can never get made. Yeah. Um, that's, you know... I have this drive and I, and I, I brought it up earlier. It's like a drug for me. I don't, you know, I, I don't know how to describe it, but I am like so driven to get things made to a fault. So maybe this is my weakness. <laughs> <laughs> we, we hit upon it. Yeah. I'm too committed. That's my, yeah. that's my weakness. Yeah. yeah. That's okay. you, uh, you, you, you just, you know, even though you at some point realize that maybe it's not the right movie to get made. Nobody wants it, but you're so driven. I'm so driven to get it up and running and figured out mm -hmm. that that's, you know, satis it's satisfying to me. And I, I, maybe I remember that from my earliest experiences as a producer was Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross being on the set when the first time we said action, cause that movie took five years to get made. No. And I remember I was, we were in a, shooting this in a Chinese restaurant in Times Square. It was Al Pacino and Jonathan Price in the scene. Mm. And I was, uh, ducked behind a, uh, a red um, booth and when they said action the first time when the director said action and it just was like this I went yeah I, I pumped my fist the satisfaction of all that work and the movie was actually getting made and it was like they cannot stop me now <laughs> and maybe I've never talked about this before by the way maybe that is that drive that's been in with me ever since it's like I gotta get this I gotta get a movie made I gotta get it made I gotta get it made um, so yes, when it doesn't get made, it's frustrating. <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't, that, it seems like one of your strengths is that you keep going and it doesn't demolish you. Whereas you minimize the impact of that and that the drive there is to keep going. And it's interesting. I've heard this from other producers say that like that first day on the set is like the best day of their life. Cause they know it's happening. Yeah. Like there's yeah. not, like no one can say no anymore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Until you actually, place. then you see the movie and you're like, oh my goodness, what the heck happened? So, um, are you allowed to swear on this podcast? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yes. So, um, yeah. so the guy who runs Shoreline now, um, has been with me for 20 years, Sam Eigen. He like tells me, he tells it to me straight because sometimes you can't see your own you know, work, even though I'm the producer, I'm not the director, I'm not the writer, but sometimes, but he'll, he'll let me know and he'll go, this is shit. <laughs> doesn't mix words. He goes, this is crap. You know? <laughs> you know, and I'm like, you know, that, me, that disappointment of, is it really that bad? And I know to trust him because he's, you know, yeah. nobody else will say it. Hmm. I've been to so many screenings where everybody's coming up and shaking the director's hand and da, da, da. Um, I'm going to go up tangent another story. I was, um, we had a film at Sundance and it had some cast in it. It was Marissa Tomei and John Goodman and Robert Carlyle, Danny DeVito with a small part, Mary Steenburgen, and got into Sundance. So just by the virtue of it getting into Sundance, every studio head wanted to meet with us because they wanted to have a jump on the film. They wanted to see it, but we refused to show it. We were going to show it in, in Sundance. So it's, um, they, somebody even put $9 million like on the table but didn't sign the contract. We have to see the movie first, but we've written the contract for $9 million to buy the movie, right? Mm -hmm. So um, my family is there. It's at the Eccles Theater, which is this huge theater in Sundance. My family's there, and they're sitting 
in front of the director and the director's family. So I tell my family, like, right after when the credits come up, stand up to get the rest of the audience going, give it a standing ovation. <laughs> and um, uh, so the director's already all pumped up because it's $9 million and we've met with every studio head. And, um, but what I knew that what he didn't know is that all these executives that we had met with, they all sit together, all these acquisitions executives, to 20 minutes they left. They left the movie, but not to buy the movie, they left because they were not interested. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, the movie ends and my family's standing up, giving it a standing ovation, and the director is like, look, my movie is amazing, and you know, and everybody's coming up and, and shaking his hand, and the movie's amazing, it's going to sell for all this money. Um, but nobody actually says the truth, which is your movie's okay. You know, your movie's pretty good. Maybe it deserved to get into Sundance, but it's not, you know, it's not the greatest. We sold the movie, but not for anything close to $9 million. It happens on movies that are not very good. Like people come up, there's uh, Jack Shoulder, who's the director. Um, he made a movie that um, the head of a studio, major player, is a friend of his, came to see the movie just out of courtesy to his friend, because Jack had directed a bunch of movies for this guy came up to him and everybody else is shaking his hand he came up to him and said your movie sucked why did you make that and he's the only person in the room that told him the truth and sometimes getting the truth hurts but having Sam tell me the truth it hurts Mm -hmm. but I move on (laughs) (laughs) should be teaching a class on resilience (laughs) what gets you up in the morning like what makes uh, like when you when you when you get down on the mat or whatever you, you take a hit like like how do you how do you navigate that to to get up in the morning or so um the one thing is coming here to this Henson lot because it's just in itself i get a oh. smile on my face when i start getting closer to charlie chaplin um, Kermit the Frog greeting me in the bowler hat and the cane yeah. looking like Charlie Chaplin yeah. and A&M Records are now the Henson Studios here and all the production activity that's going on here and I feel like I'm making movies and I'm surrounded by Miss Piggy and Muppets and fun things so just in itself coming here is fun right uh, and then um, back to what I was saying earlier that drive of like I've got all these exciting things going on. You know, I've got all these exciting things going on. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have lousy days and sometimes it's disappointing. Mm-hmm. And yes, this business is about rejection. A lot of times your projects get rejected by that distributor or that production company that you want to be in business with or that director who you made an offer to or that actor you made an offer to. But on the other hand, you know, like today I came into some exciting news on a film that I'm making with um, Frank Calfoon who directed Maniac in P2 and one of the Amityville horror movies and producing with Alexander Aja and Alex Taylor. And Alex Taylor produced Piranha 3D, and which Alexander directed. And he directed High Tension, and he directed Crawl, which was this big Paramount movie that just came out. So got an offer this morning from a studio to make this movie. And I'm like, excited right and i want to i want to get going i'm trying to you know i'm figuring out while i'm sitting here i'm figuring out i already made the, uh, the uh, calls this morning to south africa can we shoot this in south africa um it's a very contained piece that we can almost shoot it anywhere in the world mm-hmm. you know, we already have an offer out to a, an actor and wow. so you know it's, that's gets that's gets me up in the morning yeah. it's, you know it's these kind of exciting moments yeah when things are getting made and things are moving forward. We're moving forward, yeah. But we have so many, many projects that I have not mentioned yeah. to you and maybe can't mention because they haven't been announced yet, but so many, you know, maybe a hundred 
different projects in different stages that everything is at some point it is moving forward and juggling all that stuff and at some point you know we're you know just last Tuesday on Tuesday we're in a management meeting and I suggested a director for a documentary we're working on and it so happens that um, Jordan knows this director and he was in New York at the time and I said Jordan why didn't we think of such and such for this project and he said Wow, what a great idea. Let me ask her. He asked her. She ends up loving the subject matter. She ends up meeting with him in New York, and she's said, I want to do this documentary. And suddenly, you know, just on a Tuesday meeting, by Thursday we have a director. That kind of stuff is, is fun. Mm. So you have so many streams coming in from so many different angles that even if there's one little mm, snafu in here, there's so many other streams coming at you. I think so. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. What, that's what I'm hearing and seeing. You, you, yeah, you, you, you know, yeah. but you gotta in this business, especially as a writer, you gotta deal with rejection. As an actor, you gotta deal with rejection. So same goes for a producer. It's just part of the. It's part of what it is. I mean, mm-hmm. people are too busy. I mean, I'm the same. People try to send me stuff all day long, and I can't. Mm-hmm. I can't look at it. I just yeah. don't have the time. I'm so busy with the hundred that we have, plus the management company, plus all their projects. Mm-hmm. That I, you know, right. somebody wants to send me a script. It might be great, but you know, it, it's got to come in through another channel. Mm. Yeah. It sounds like with Mojo, you guys, you're moving into television as well. Um, was that just the obvious reality that with streaming and this era we're living in, that serialized storytelling was something you guys had to do? I mean, because you have a long history as a feature producer. Yeah, I think that's part of it. Uh, part of it is even while at Shoreline, I had set up some television stuff, so. I was, you know, part of the incentive to start Mojo or something different is that Shoreline really wasn't involved in any of those television stuff because it didn't require any sales. So I had that and I had some stuff set up at studios that didn't involve Shoreline. So um, so I was already interested in television maybe because, yeah, that's, and, and having the management company, right? And that's another creative outlet. We're involved in uh, virtual reality as well. Oh. And that's coming through our management company. I think... Now that I think about it, since you asked the question, I think the television stuff mainly came from our management clients by having the management division and these clients developing television projects. That's what sort of inspired me to get more involved in television. And then uh, same with virtual reality. It's really, it's, it's coming from one client who's sort of ahead of the curve in VR. And now I'm looking at starting a VR division, putting a couple of clients together Nice. And creating a, a vision because the two of them together are amazing. Um, they've never met each other, by the way, but so oh. this is all in my mind. But mm-hmm. they are two amazing people <laughs> that I think will be amazing together. You can send them the podcast. Yeah. 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 <laughs> welcome, welcome to your new life. Yeah. And then building it from there because they can yeah. bring in other people. And, yeah. Wow. You know what I'm also hearing and seeing is that, you know, um, again, you're a visionary. You hold things, you keep things going, which is fantastic. Um, and then there's also that. That first story, one of the first stories you told us, which was about Mary and how she held a vision for you and how you hold visions for other people. And that's just beautiful how that, that circle of life is happening. Well, thank you. And continues. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. I'm also struck by that. Could, could you tell us that story? Because you mentioned it briefly before we started about the thing about on the beach and, 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 uh, and the lifeguard house. And that was so mm, interesting. So... Um, it was a year ago. I was in Durban, South Africa. At and the, where is that in relationship to like 
Cape Town? Is that right? Yeah, it's two-hour oh. flight. Oh, okay. okay. Um, but it's a beach town. It's a tourist destination. And I, when I was very little, we used to go there on vacations, and I hadn't been since. So I was probably three and four when I used to go there. Um, and I got lost on the beach when I was that age. And it stuck with me because that was a sort of traumatic thing. Um, and uh, the story goes that I didn't even know my last name. That's how young I was when I got lost on the beach. But they took me up to the lifeguard station. They took me upstairs. And I remember vividly what the lifeguard station looked like, what the upstairs looked like, the person that, you know, that I was, was helping me looked like. Um, they asked me my name, and they asked me what's my last name, and I said, nobody. <laughs> so there was a, a PA system there who said, we're the parents of Morris Nobody, please come. <laughs> so that's been actually a family story um, throughout the year. So I went back there to Durban, first time I'd been since, and the exact same life station was there, sitting there, not changed. Mm-hmm. The, the the look, the stairs, the upstairs, it's just it's still there. And so much of Durban is still there. The little places where I used to play as a kid are still there. The little the, the hotels are still there. Everything is just the same. But, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, such yeah. a great image. Yeah. 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 It, it definitely struck me with chills. <laughs> yeah. And there was an ice cream I used to get when I was a kid called Top Ten. So <laughs> here I am. <laughs> walking around. I think it was actually, I, I took a bike ride along the beach path. Mm. And every time I saw an ice cream vendor, I would stop and say, do you have any top? Nobody had it. So I was like, I had to go to every vendor. <laughs> do you have any top 10? No. But we have seen, you know, this mint. no, I'm looking for top 10. Do you have any top 10? Fun. Yeah, it was just, you know, it probably wouldn't be as good as what I remember anyway. So Yeah. yeah. I got very attached to the chocolate I ate as a child in South Africa. Mm. Yeah, there's one kind of chocolate called Top Deck, which oh, yeah. is a layer of milk chocolate Cadbury with a layer of white chocolate on top. I just I used to make my mom bring it back to me from South Africa. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. attached to peppermint crisps where you can't get sure. almost anywhere else. There is a store here that has them, but they have to ship them in illegally because apparently you're going to like this, Joshua. The <laughs> green dye they use oh. is illegal. <laughs> so oh, evil they sneak it. Yeah, they sneak them in. Wow. That's actually really good. Contraband. I love yeah. it. Yeah. We're not going to name any names on this. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I really appreciate you coming in today. It was uh, a distinct pleasure, and you're such a, a generous human being, an artist, and, and creator, and, and um, like a, um, a champion, really. And, and I mean that in the, in the broadest sense of that word, like how you champion causes and other people, and I guess it's inspired by your mom and your dad, you know, by them championing their own projects, and you're, you're carrying that lineage forward, and it's beautiful. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you for the chocolate. <laughs> The drinks, the <laughs> tuna wrap, yeah. uh, and for coming yeah. over here. Sure. Yeah. yeah. We were sure with 100 projects going on, you had nothing better to do this afternoon <laughs> than to hang out and talk to us. Also, we just want to know if you have a script and you want to send it to Morris, you can don't. Reach <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't. You can cut that part, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But Morris, we truly appreciate it. It's been great. And it's super educational for our listeners to understand how the process works and to know what the job is and also, you know, just the notes about being resistant and dealing with, resilient, excuse me, and dealing with rejection. It's really helpful to hear that. Well, good. It's been fun. It's always, like I said, being a producer, you do all sorts of different things, so it's always fun to do something new and different. (laughs) Thank you, guys. Thank you.